Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 17 as we see the conversion of the Apostle Paul described in just so many words to Timothy. This is not the only time in the New Testament that we see the, the, the Apostle's testimony. We see it in action in Acts chapter 9. We see it later as Paul describes it in Acts 22 and in Acts 27. He talks about it in Philippians 3. He, he relates to it in the church at Corinth at the letters he writes there. But he, he specifically talks about his conversion. And he says some really beautiful and interesting things for us that we should consider this morning. So 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 12. The Apostle Paul says this, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, as we study Your Word now, as we continue to worship by focusing on Your Word, would You give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive? Would You help us to stay focused and to learn, and would you move among us by your Spirit to convict us where we need to be convicted, and to confront us where we need to be confronted, and to comfort us where we need to be comforted. Lord, would you have your way with us and accomplish your purpose in us today through the preaching of your Word. And I pray for those among us who don't know you, who have not yet come to this point of conversion like Paul being broken over sin and seeing his need of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would be about that work today, that your mercy and grace would flood and overflow in our hearts so that we could respond with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Accomplish your purpose, and I pray you'd use me for that end. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. The author of this incredible hymn that we just sang, he, you may know the story, he lived a life of hardship and sin. Most of his life was spent uh, on the sea with his father. His father was a ship captain, and I think by the age of nine, he ended up with his father out on the ocean. And in his time on the ocean, he he met with various hardships. He was 
shipwrecked on more than one occasion. He eventually became the captain of his own ship. It happened to be a slave ship at the time. And then later on, he became a captive himself and was forced into slavery. But it was on one dark and stormy night at sea that brought a change to his life that would last to the end of his days. It was the 10th of March, 1748, and here are his own words. He says, that 10th of March is a day much to be remembered by me, and I have never allowed it to pass unnoticed since the year 1748. For on that day, the Lord came from on high and delivered me out of the deep waters. You see, the storm at sea was threatening his life and all those on board. And in the midst of his terror, he cried out for the mercy of God. As he reflected on this night years later, he would write much about it. But he wrote this. He said, mercy. What mercy can there be for me? This was the first desire I had breathed for mercy in many years. But the Lord did answer his cry. And he went on to write about it. He said, I thought... I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor. I began to pray. I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to a reconciled God and call him Father. My prayer for mercy was like the cry of the ravens, which yet the Lord does not disdain to hear. And so after a life of rebellion and sin, after he faced death on the sea, John Newton sought God's mercy and he found it. And he would later write about that. He said, it is certain, you've heard this phrase before, it is certain that I am not what I ought to be, but blessed be God, I am not what I once was. God has mercifully brought me up out of the deep miry clay. He has set my feet upon the rock, Christ Jesus. He has saved my soul, and now it is my heart's desire to extol and honor His matchless, free, sovereign, and distinguishing grace, because by the grace of God, I am what I am. And it is my heart's great joy to ascribe my salvation entirely to the grace of God. That's the man who wrote the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. And knowing his story gives new meaning to those words. He was lost, but now he was found. He was blind, but now he sees. And I could have chosen one of dozens of testimonies like this. Testimonies of conversion. These stories of God's mercy changing the life of sinners. These things echo through our history as Christians. And they remind us as a testament to the power of God's grace and his love to the worst of sinners. And they are amazing stories. But as we turn to the New Testament, we see certain stories of conversion that rise above others because they just dominate the New Testament. Like I mentioned earlier, the Apostle Paul's testimony is written all over the New Testament. And so this morning, as we study this passage where the Apostle Paul gives us his testimony of conversion and calling to ministry, he's going to do so in three different ways, or at least I see three different things here. He, said, he gives thanks first to the Lord Jesus Christ as he describes his conversion, and then he moves from giving thanks to the Lord to showing that he is the product of Christ's mercy. And then finally, he helps us to see that his conversion comes with a calling. So the first thing is that he gives thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows that he is the product of Christ's mercy, and then he shows that his conversion comes with a calling. Let's look at the first one back in verse 12. He says, I thank him who has given me strength 
Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, it's not uncommon for the Apostle Paul to start with a a word of gratitude. He often opens the books that that he's writing, the letters that he's written to the churches with this note of gratitude. But it is strange that he references Jesus Christ here. He generally says, thanks be to God the Father the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't do that. The formula changes. It's often that he says, thanks be to God, but here he says, thanks be to Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is not a bug, it's actually a feature. There are two themes that run through these few verses, and the themes are revealed in the repetition of terms. Let me just point out a few things to you, and you probably saw it as we read through this, that four different times the Apostle Paul refers to Jesus, and he doesn't just refer to him as Jesus or Lord or Christ or Savior. He is very specific. He refers to him each time as Christ Jesus or Jesus the Christ. In verse 12, he refers to him as Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 14, he draws our attention to the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In verse 15... He gives us the trustworthy statement that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then in verse 16, he tells us that Jesus Christ wants to display his mercy through Paul's life. And you may think, well, that's not uncommon. No, it's not uncommon throughout the New Testament, but it is uncommon to all of it to be sandwiched together into just five verses. And what that means is the Apostle Paul is emphasizing Jesus' role as the Christ. And that's not the only theme here. Four other times, he uses a a word group for the term faith or faithfulness. In verse 12, he, he says that Christ judged him faithful. In verse 13, he refers to his unbelief or lack of faith that he possessed as as an unbeliever. In verse 14, he talks about the grace of God overflowing to produce faith. And then in verse 16... He he talks of himself as an example to those who were to believe or those who were to have faith. And all of those terms have a similar root. And so what Paul is doing is he's bringing these two terms together to get a point across. This is not a coincidence. The false teachers that Paul has instructed Timothy to correct and to confront, the false teachers in the church at Ephesus are minimizing the authority and deity of Christ, and they are elevating the importance of the law. That's what we've been seeing in the last few weeks. And Paul's bringing all of these things together to show, no, our hope is in the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the faith that has been granted to us by the Lord Jesus Christ. The false teachers are stressing one thing, and Paul is saying, you're stressing the wrong thing. And so he repeats these terms to kind of get his point across that only by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone can sinners be saved and reconciled to God. So there's an importance to what he's saying and how he's saying it. And for Paul, this is not simply a theological discussion. I know this is more of a theological aim for us. But for him, this is just his personal testimony. His hope is not in his adherence to the law. His hope is not in the law. His hope is in Christ Jesus, and his confidence is in the faith that he has been given. He gives all glory to Christ for his conversion, and it starts by the strength that Christ supplies. You see that at the beginning of verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength. 
Paul identifies three blessings that the Christ that, that the Lord has given to him, and the first one is strength. It is the strength of God, not man, that initiates our conversion. In Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He's drawing attention to something in there. He's saying it's not the law that is strengthening us toward God, the law just reveals our weakness and our desperate need of the strength that only God supplies by His Spirit. See, the initiating strength of Christ is the power that brings us from death to life, like we read earlier, like Breck read for us in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul teaches that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. And all of this is by grace. You see, apart from the supernatural strength that God supplies, no one would be converted. And that's why Paul gives thanks to Jesus for providing this strength. But he doesn't just give thanks to Jesus for providing the strength of initiating grace, but he he gives credit to Jesus because Jesus judged him faithful. Now, what does that mean? Jesus judged him faithful. Kind of seems like a like a contradiction here. You're saying it's all of grace, but then now you're saying that Jesus judged me faithful? Does that mean Jesus looked at you and saw that you were faithful and said, oh, I'm going to save this guy? That's not what he's saying at all. Paul is not saying that based on his faithfulness to the law, Jesus judged him to be faithful by the law standard. And the reason we know that is the rest of the New Testament, but it's also right here in this passage. In verse 13, Paul makes clear, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. In other words, he's saying, I was guilty of breaking the law. I was guilty of breaking the commandments of God. The first table of the law, blasphemy against God. The second table of the law, persecuting the people of God. He's saying, look, I was was a sinner. So in what way should we understand that Jesus judged him faithful? Well, let's look at some of the other ways that the Apostle Paul talks about his conversion and he uses terminology that helps us understand this. In 1 Corinthians 7.25, Paul says that, that it is by the Lord's mercy that he is trustworthy. Well, that's interesting. His trustworthiness is owing to the mercy of God. It's not that the mercy of God is owing to his trustworthiness. His faithfulness in the work of ministry is the result of God's grace in him, not the cause of God's grace in him. Do you remember the the story of Paul's conversion back in Acts chapter 9? There was a point which Jesus revealed himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, and Paul was made blind. Y'all remember that part of the story? And then in in the midst of that, God speaks to a man named Ananias. Do you remember Ananias? And Ananias was a faithful follower of Christ, and and Christ told him, hey, you're going to go and you're going to meet this man named Saul, and you're going to go and lay hands on him. And Ananias is like, whoa, Lord, hold on a second. Are you talking about the same Saul who's killing my brothers in, in the city? Are you talking about the same Saul who's persecuting the church? Are you talking about that Saul? And Jesus says, yes, I'm talking about that Saul. And Jesus tells Ananias, he is a chosen instrument of mine 
to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In order for Saul to become a faithful Christian and a useful servant in the hands of God, he had to be confronted and converted. It wasn't his faithfulness that brought about God's calling on his life. It was actually the opposite. He was a chosen instrument of the Lord. Other passages that draw this point out. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8, Paul writes, I am the very least of all the saints, and this grace was given to me. Grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 9 and 10, Paul says, it's only by the grace of God that I am what I am. And so when we put all these phrases together, we see that it was the grace of God that produced faithfulness in Paul, not the other way around. So Paul is praising Jesus for his mercy that renders him faithful. So not only does Paul thank him for that initiating strength, he, f- he thanks him for the mercy that renders him faithful, but he also thanks Christ for appointing him into his service. He was appointed to the task of preaching the gospel, and he sees this as a service to the Lord. He's been made a servant for all for the sake of the gospel. Now, we don't think much about that word servant, but we probably should. The word servant, when we think of servants, when we think of it in a Christian context, we we generally clean it up a little bit, but it's it's a pretty harsh comment to be a servant. It's a lowly position. You're not a lord. You're not the master. You're not the guy in charge. You're a servant. And Paul is praising Christ for making him a servant. To be a servant is normally viewed in a very lowly way, but Paul is telling us, and he tells us in so many other places as well, that he would rather be a servant in the household of God than the Lord in the world of men. Now, there's an illustration that came up as I'm studying through this. It comes from a man by the name of William Barclay, and he gives us a story from history that illustrates a similar approach to this type of selfless service. He says, or he recounts from Plutarch that Plutarch writes about the Spartans. You remember the Spartan army, these mighty men? The Spartan army uh, was made up of all kinds of men from various classes, but a lot of times those men would go to the Olympic Games, or what we would understand to be the Olympic Games. And, And if a Spartan won a victory at the Games, then they would be rewarded in the field of battle, to be able to stand alongside their king. And after the victory that a Spartan had won in the game, someone might say to him, well, Spartan, what have you got out of this costly victory that you have won? And the Spartan would answer, I have won the privilege of standing in front of my king, in front of my king, in battle. See, Paul recognized that it was an honor for him to be a servant of Christ, a bond slave of the Son of God as he refers to himself in other places. So when we put all this together and we look at verse 12, we understand that Paul sees his life as a Christian and his ministry as an apostle as a gift of the grace of Christ. And here's the question. Have you come to see your own faith and your own ministry as a gift or a burden Do you serve the Lord with a happy heart, knowing that it is a privilege to stand in the company of saints, to stand by Jesus in this hostile and sinful world? 
There is no greater privilege afforded to any in this life save to know and serve Christ. So do you see your conversion and your ministry as a gift? Now that Paul has expressed his gratitude to Jesus, now he's going to get into some of the particulars of his conversion. And he makes it clear in this that he is a product of Christ's mercy. Look at verse 13 with me. Paul says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, I find this absolutely interesting because of knowing Paul's resume prior to his conversion. See, John Newton wrote a song about the fact that he was once lost and blind as a wretch before the amazing grace of God set him free. Paul confesses that he was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent, an angry person in opposition to Christ. And this was all before he received mercy from Christ. And let's understand some of those terms. What does it mean to blaspheme? To blaspheme means to deny God or to speak carelessly about God. It means to attribute ideas to God that aren't true of Him or to deny ideas about God that are true of Him. And I think that this is a profound confession on the part of the Apostle Paul. For him to understand that before he came to Christ, he was a blasphemer. And the reason that I think that this is so profound is because before he came to Christ, he was actually a very faithful Jew. You may know this about the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee. He, he upheld the law of God. His, his whole reason for being with regard to his religious convictions was to uphold the law of God. And yet he understands now on this side of his conversion that he was blaspheming the name of God. He says this in Philippians 3. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What in the world? How can he say in Philippians that I was blameless under the law and now here to Timothy he says, but I was a, a blasphemer of, of God? What does he mean? This takes us back to one of the themes of the passage. Remember I, I mentioned those two themes? The theme of Christ being Lord and of faith in Him being our only hope. He was a blasphemer because he did not recognize that Jesus was the Son of God. He was a blasphemer because he was denying the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. He was denying him to be the second person of the Trinity, worthy of worship and praise and obedience. And Paul was doing everything he could to be faithful to the law of God because of his devotion to the principles of Pharisaism, but he was guilty as a blasphemer because he didn't love and worship and obey Jesus as Lord. And this is one of the problems with the false teachers in Ephesus. They're downplaying the importance of Jesus. They're elevating the importance of the law. And Paul is saying this to them. When you reduce Jesus down to anything less than the Son of God, you are guilty of breaking the commandments. And this has massive implications for our world today. If Jesus were just a man, 
then to worship him would be idolatry. But since Jesus is the Son of God, not to worship him is blasphemy. Paul says, I was not only a blasphemer, but I was a persecutor of the church. Paul was guilty of hating his neighbors rather than loving them. He was breaking the law of God. He was actually persecuting those who were sons and daughters of God. He was guilty of breaking the second table of the law. And and like I said a minute ago, this confession has massive implications for our world today. Men and women who refuse to bow the knee to Christ are guilty before God of blasphemy. When Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah, don't forget, Paul's a Jew, right? And when Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah, as the one and only Son of God, they are guilty of breaking the very commandments that they claim to uphold. When unbelievers reduce Jesus down to simply being a moral teacher or a miracle worker or a human prophet of God, they are guilty of sin in the eyes of God. And if not for the mercy and grace of God, we would all be under the just judgment of this particular sin. Because until God reveals himself through Christ and reveals to us that Christ is both Lord and God, we're all going to blaspheme him as something less than what he truly is. But in Paul's case, and in the case of every believer today, God's grace has overflowed. That's what he says in the text. He says, but God's grace overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And the imagery he uses here of grace overflowing like a flood, it's, it's, it's the idea of a flood, right? I mean, think about a river and, and the water... The waters come or the rain comes or the floods come from the, from the mountains and the, the waters overflow the banks. And he's referring to the grace of God overflowing its banks. And we know floods, well we know flash floods here in Texas because like I've always said, Texas is trying to kill us. We know flash floods and we know how destructive they can be. Flood of God's grace isn't destructive, it's restorative. It doesn't destroy us so much as it builds us up in the way that God wants it to. And that's why we sing songs like, O Fount of Love. Here's that song. O Fount of Love, divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side, where sinners trade their filthy rags for His righteousness applied, mercy cleansing every stain, now rushing over us like a flood. There the wretch and vilest ones stand adopted through his blood. That's what the, the flood of God's mercy does. It, it causes us to stand in the, in the righteousness of Christ. And apart from Christ, we're all set to receive the flood of God's wrath. Because of our blasphemy and because of our persecution or our violent opposition to Christ, but because of His mercy, His grace overflows to us to bring faith and love and restoration. And if you're a believer in Christ, you might not have put it in the same terms, but Paul wants us to understand that that's what God has done in your heart. That's what God has done in your life. And then he gives us this beautiful statement, which is a a statement of the gospel in one phrase. The saying is still trustworthy. This is verse 15. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says this, of whom I am the foremost, or in some translations, of whom I am chief. It says, Paul reflects on the grace of God that has been shown to him, and he 
reflects upon his sin that, that brought him into a position of needing the grace of God. He says of himself, I am the foremost sinner. I am the worst of sinners. I am the captain of sinners. I am the chief sinner in the world. I wonder if you've ever thought of yourself in the same way. When we're confronted by the Spirit of God for our sin, it doesn't cause us to boast about our awesomeness. It brings us low because we see ourselves exposed by the love and grace and mercy of God, the holiness of God. Have you, like Paul, ever seen yourself in that way, been brought so low under the crushing weight of your sin that you would declare yourself the worst of sinners and desperately in need of a Savior? Have you ever been brought low? Every week we confess our sin, and Cody is faithful to lead us in that. And honestly, that's the kind of work that we should be doing on a daily basis, to confess our sins before God and to be renewed in His grace. But when we come, is that just something that you just pause and stand still for until it's over? Or is it something you take seriously as you reflect on your sin and your ongoing need of God's grace? See, Paul wasn't the only one who should feel the weight of his sin in the way of saying, I am the worst of sinners. This is something that all of us should experience at some level under the conviction of sin that leads to brokenness. Have you come to see yourself in this way? Like Cody mentioned, if you see that your sin is small, then guess what? You only need a small Savior to save you. But if you rightly see your sin as something great and far beyond your capacity, then the Savior who brings salvation from that sin, He is great indeed. And I think we often see our sin as something small. The type of humility that the Apostle Paul reflects here is the only right response to having the, the holiness and mercy of God revealed to us. So dear friend, has the reality of your sin before God brought you to your knees? Has the conviction of the Spirit of God caused you to cry out for the forgiveness that you can only receive through Christ? This is what conversion is. I'll give you an illustration. And I won't go... To the Lord of the Rings, Jeff, I'll go to C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Pretty much the same. Thank you, Jeff. Do y'all remember the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? Some of you do. There's a, there's a character in that book. His name is Eustace Scrub. And that's how you should pronounce his name, because Eustace Scrub was a monstrous boy. To everyone else, he was self-righteous and arrogant and greedy and just downright ruthless. But the whole time, he thought of himself as the true hero of the story. Now, along the way in the story, Eustace, through his greed and other things, he, he accidentally transforms into a dragon. Y'all remember this part of the story? And this transformation allowed the true motivation of his heart to become manifested in his outward appearance. But the first step to his spiritual transformation was for Eustace to recognize that his new outward appearance was actually a display of his heart. He had to realize that he was a monster deep down and not the nice person that he always supposed himself to be. And when he came to this 
conclusion, this truth just absolutely broke him. It brought him low. It made him long to shed the dragon's skin. But he found that he couldn't take it off on his own. Y'all remember this? He couldn't, he couldn't remove it. He couldn't get free from it on his own. He needed Aslan to come. Aslan's the Christ figure in that story, for those of you who don't know. He needed Aslan to come, and it was only by the power of Aslan that, that Aslan could strip away his dragon hide. And it was a painful transformation for Eustace, but in the end, Aslan stripped away the sinful hide one layer at a time, and when the excruciating process was over, Eustace was a boy again, but he had also become a true Narnian. Now, all of that is is an allegory for conversion to Christ. We have to recognize our sinfulness. We have to recognize our monstrous inner dragon. We have to come to the point where we see ourselves as the worst of sinner in desperate need of God's saving grace and transforming love. And Jesus comes and strips away the monstrous hide of our hearts. He tears away our guilt and our sin layer by layer. He causes us by the strength that he supplies to be born again. And this transformation makes us fit for the calling that rests upon the lives of God's people. And that's what the Apostle Paul talks about in verses 16 and 17. He helps us to understand that salvation comes with a calling. Look at verse 16. He said, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. The mercy of Christ transformed Paul to be a display of God's perfect patience. If God is willing to endure our early life of monstrous sin and still show us the mercy of salvation, then there is no sinner that is beyond his ability to save. In Christ, we become a display of God's patience and love. Not because we're so awesome, but because he is so merciful. And the life we live on this side of our conversion is to serve as an example of his power and love. Brother, sister, do you realize that you have been saved on purpose and for a purpose? And it's not just to come here and sit on nice, comfortable purple chairs. Your salvation comes with a calling. Your conversion comes with a calling. Christ is not through with you. He has given you the gift of salvation and love so that you, every single one of you, I should say y'all because we're in the South. Every single one of y'all have become a conduit of his love to the world around you. I haven't said this in a while, but I used to say it all the time. The gifts of God are not intended to just terminate on you. They're meant to flow through you to other people. Conversion comes with a calling. All of the gifts that God gives us, they are intended to bring us joy and happiness, and security, and comfort, and peace, but they are also intended to be shared by us with others, whatever the gift may be. God's gifts are not intended to terminate on our happiness alone. They shape us. God's power shapes us into examples of God's grace. Not perfect examples, mind you, but faithful examples. Even the gift of salvation is meant to flow through us so that other people can share in his mercy. When you come to know Christ and you come to understand the gospel and you profess faith in Christ, you have a story to tell. 
It's the story of your own conversion, just like Paul's doing here. It's the story of God's mercy, and you don't hold that in. You open your mouth and speak it, or you log on to something and type it out. You share it with others so that others can experience the same grace that you've experienced. Every blessing from God that you have received, be it financial wealth or spiritual wisdom or saving grace, all of them are intended to flood out from your life so that you become a channel through which God blesses others. That's what Paul's helping us to understand. God had a purpose for me, and I received mercy for a reason. And so have you. So have I, all of us. Paul received the mercy of Christ, and it transformed him into a pastor and a church planter and a scripture writer and a world changer. Paul didn't take the gift that God had given him, the little talent that God had given him, and then hide it in the backyard in a hole. No, he used it so that it multiplied, and that's what he calls us to do too. Every blessing that we've received is intended to be put on display for the glory of God. We are to give our lives to make God's mercy known to as many as possible. And this calling does rest on all of us. Our lives are to bear witness to Him so that we can say along with Paul what we see here in verse 17, which is a, a, it's, it's a benediction, if you will. He says, to the King of ages, and he's referring to Christ, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. See, it's, we give thanks to Christ for the work that he has done to bring us into the faith. And we are the product of his mercy alone. And our conversion comes with a calling. So what do we do with all of this? Here's a few applications. Let me just ask the hard question. Has your life been transformed by the mercy and grace of Jesus? And let me be clear on this. Not every Christian experiences conversion like Paul. And not every Christian experiences conversion like John Newton out in the middle of the ocean about to die. But every Christian experiences conversion. It's an essential part. Jesus says, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Have you been born again? Conversion begins with the gracious gift of new life. And it gives rise to a genuine faith and a repentance that continues throughout the Christian life. Conversion is marked by a recognition of sin and an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is your only hope of salvation. Some of you are familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, and question 88 asks, in how many things does true repentance or conversion consist? And the answer is in two things, the dying of the old man and the making alive of the new. Has your life been changed by the truth of the gospel? Have you been born again to turn from your sin and embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord? Too many people in the church today claim to be Christians, but their lives show little to no evidence of true conversion. It's a sad thing. To be a Christian means that you've been changed by the gospel from that old life of sin to a new life of Faith. To truly follow Jesus means you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. So my question is, have you been transformed by the mercy and grace of God? Second question. Christian, have you embraced the calling that comes with your conversion? Have you embraced the calling that comes with your conversion? Are you living to make Christ known? As a Christian, are you sharing Christ with others? 
Now, understanding that your conversion comes with a calling does not mean that every Christian is going to become a pastor or that every Christian is going to become a missionary to a foreign land or that every Christian is going to, going to become a Sunday school teacher. But the question is, are you understanding that you have been changed for the purpose of serving the Lord in some capacity? Is there, there are many different capacities. Are you serving the Lord as a programmer, for those of you who are programmers, and seeking to make much of Christ even in that role? Are you serving Christ as an engineer, seeking to be an example of the mercy of God to those that you work with, and even through your work to display something of your faithfulness to Him? As a mother, are you embracing the calling that rests upon your life as a mother to know Christ and make Him known in your mothering? What about as a teacher? I mean, we could just go down the list. There is nothing going on in our lives that Jesus Christ says, oh, you can have that to yourself. That doesn't have any bearing on me. Everything that we are and everything that we do should have the stamp of Christ on it. Because now that we have come to know Him, that conversion that we've experienced of His mercy and grace, it comes with a calling. Have you embraced that as a home group leader? as a worship team leader, as a greeter, whatever the case might be, whatever way that you can serve the Lord, are you doing so because you have come to understand that your conversion comes with a calling? This picture of the power of God changing a man's life is something that we should never get tired of. But we should inspect our own hearts to see, have we been changed in similar fashion? And if you're an unbeliever, you haven't yet come to profess faith in Christ and turn away from your life of sin. Friend, I'd love to speak with you more about the gospel. But now I'm going to pray for you and for all of us. So let's do that. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this testimony. I thank you for the word that you have given us from the Apostle Paul, our brother, to teach us more about what it looks like to be a recipient of your mercy and to have that mercy transform us into a conduit of your love. I do pray that in the preaching and teaching of your word, Father, that you would be glorified and that we would be soundly instructed. And so as we seek to be faithful to the text, as we seek to be faithful to you, Lord, give us a clear picture of our calling. Give us a humility in our hearts over the weight of our sin, even now and on an ongoing basis, so that we can never forget that our salvation is owing completely to your mercy and grace. And would you use that humility in us to accomplish your purpose in the world? Father, I thank you for this time and I pray your blessing over it in Jesus' name. Amen.